So I, I know you've got a lot going on. But remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. Hello, everyone. Happy Wednesday. Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah, and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, I want to remind you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button. If you are not already, we post weekly here every single Wednesday, and you are not going to want to miss it. As you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about Jennifer Dulos. Now, this case has been highly, highly requested by you guys ever since it happened, and it's one that I have followed since the beginning. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. Jennifer Dulos was born on September 27th, 1968 to her parents, Gloria and Hilliard. She was born in New York City and has an older sister named Melissa. Jennifer attended and graduated from Brown University in 1990, and after Brown, she went on to earn her master's degree in writing from New York University, the Tisch School of the Arts. Now, all of Jennifer's life, she has had a very well-off lifestyle. She always lived in really nice areas. Her father worked in finance, and her mother had her doctorates in early childhood education. Now, sometimes the people who seem to have everything in life definitely come with an ego or an attitude, but that was not the case for Jennifer at all. Anyone who knew Jennifer said that she was extremely humble and down to earth. She had a very warm energy about her and a contagious smile. She was known to be very soft-spoken, very kind. She's just described as the most loving and caring person surrounded in an environment where it would be very easy for her to not have those qualities, but that's what makes Jennifer so special. Now, in 2003, Jennifer got together with an old classmate of hers that she had met while attending Brown University. Now, after they graduated Brown, they lost touch from one another and went on with their lives, did their own thing, but then coincidentally enough, ran into each other at the Aspen Airport in Colorado, and they reconnected there and decided to meet up again in a more formal setting. Now, this classmate, this old classmate of Jennifer's, is a man that goes by the name Fotis Dulos. Fotis was born on August 6, 1967 in Turkey and spent his childhood in Athens, Greece. He ended up moving to the U.S. in 1986 and graduated from Brown one year prior to Jennifer in 1989. Now, after Brown, he earned his MBA in finance from Columbia Business School. And interestingly enough, when Fotis and Jennifer ran into each other at the Aspen Airport, Fotis was actually married. He had married a woman three years prior in the year 2000 named Hillary. However, their marriage ended on July 12th, 2004. Now, Fotis was known as a very outgoing man. He had a very lively personality and was incredibly charming, which is one of the reasons that Jennifer was so attracted to him. She liked the fact that he was charming and seemed like he had a lot to offer and was also well-educated, so their backgrounds really matched up in that way. 
Now, even though Fotis was still married at this point, Jennifer and Fotis went on their first official date in 2003, and they really hit it off. Like I said, Jennifer loved the fact that he was charming and suave. And more than that, Fotis really narrowed in on the fact that his goal was to settle down and get married and have a family. Ironic, considering he was already married at that point, but we'll skip over that. I'm really not sure about Jennifer's knowledge of Fotis's first marriage, if Fotis said that the marriage was already, if he said that they were already separated, there really isn't that much information as to how much Jennifer knew about his previous marriage. I'm sure she had to have known to a certain extent. But when Fotis told Jennifer that his long-term goal was to be the family man, Jennifer was really happy when he told her this because having a family was a goal for her as well. She wanted to settle down and start the next chapter of her life. And she was really, really excited that it seemed like that's what Fotis wanted as well. After the first date, the two continued on dating and ended up getting married on August 28, 2004. And at that time, Fotis had officially been divorced from his wife for just about a month at that point. Now, after they got married, Fotis and Jennifer picked up from their home in Manhattan, New York, and moved to Farmington, Connecticut to start a family. Fotis also used his time to start his own company. He founded a real estate development company and actually designed the home that him and his family lived in. And once that started rolling out, they started to have children. The house was a beautiful six-bedroom home with a bunch of different amenities to complement it, and they needed all of that space because Fotis and Jennifer ended up having five kids in total. They actually had two separate sets of twins. The first set was two boys, and the second set was a boy and a girl, and then they had a daughter as their youngest. Now, even though this family seemed to have absolutely everything and more from the outside, they were really struggling internally. Fotis was known to have a very quick temper, and his temper caused him and his marriage with Jennifer to really suffer. From a very young age, Fotis got his children into water skiing when his children were very young at their very young age, which is a sport that he himself was heavily involved in. He participated in lots of water skiing competitions, and he wanted his kids to follow in his footsteps. So he started training them when his two oldest children were just six years old, and they were at that point being involved in international water skiing competitions. Now, Fotis took this way more seriously than his children did, and Jennifer started to notice that Fotis was being a little too hard on his children, trying to enforce his dream onto them, which is really not something that his kids wanted. Now, when Jennifer would take these concerns to Fotis and tell him that he was being too harsh on their children, he would get incredibly angry and defensive anytime she would bring this up. And this really was the start of their tumultuous relationship. Over time, they would continuously argue. And due to their constant arguing, the two of them started spending less and less time together. Fotis would go off on work trips for days at a time, which would leave Jennifer at the home alone with her five children. But Jennifer honestly didn't mind the time alone. She actually enjoyed it. It allowed her to run a much smoother household 
household without Fotis around. So now let's fast forward to 2017. Now into early mid 2017, Fotis went to a water skiing competition in Miami for himself. He would also participate in these competitions. And during this specific competition, Fotis met a woman named Michelle Traconis. Now, Michelle was from Venezuela, and she worked as an ESPN reporter in South America. Now, just after spending a little time with Michelle, Fotis started to realize that him and Michelle had way more in common than him and Jennifer ever did. They were both extremely competitive by nature and liked to do a lot of outdoor activities together. According to Michelle, she said that when she met Fotis, she was under the impression from what Fotis had told her that him and Jennifer were no longer together and that they had separated. Now, personally, I think it's important to note that no matter how much knowledge Michelle had on Fotis and Jennifer's relationship, this is clearly a pattern with Fotis. He travels to these different places, meets these other women, and can see a better connection with them than he does with his wife at the time already. It's clearly a pattern. This has now happened two times, so I think it's just interesting to note that. Now, with Fotis being gone as often as he was and being so distant, it wasn't hard for Jennifer to put two and two together about what was happening. She was pretty positive that Fotis was having an affair, so she decided to confront him about it. And when she did, Fotis did not hold back. Fotis told her all about the affair that he was having with Michelle and all about the infidelity that had been going on. And even though, obviously, hearing something like that is excruciatingly painful, Jennifer really wasn't that surprised. For her, it was more so just confirming everything that she already knew. After having this conversation with Fotis, Jennifer filed for divorce from Fotis on June 20th, 2017. And that same month, she ended up renting a house located in New Canaan, Connecticut, which is about 70 miles away from Farmington. In the divorce court documents, Jennifer mentioned how she was actually afraid of Fotis. She said, quote, I know that filing for divorce and filing for this motion will enrage him. I know he will retaliate by trying to harm me in some way, end quote. That statement alone is huge in retrospect to this entire case, but let's continue. She went on to say that Fotis had threatened to kidnap their children if she did not comply to his terms in the divorce settlement. After Jennifer moved out of the house, Fotis actually wasted no time and invited Michelle and Michelle's daughter to move into the Farmington house with him, which she agreed to do. In March 2018, the judge ruled that Jennifer had sole physical custody of the children and both parents would share legal custody and Fotis was granted supervised visits and monitored phone calls. Now, this was an agreement that he was not happy with whatsoever. So now that you have a little bit of an understanding on the background of this family and on Jennifer and Fotis and their arrangement, let's move on to May 24th, 2019. Now, May 24th, 2019. On this day, Jennifer had a full day ahead of her. She had to wake up and get her five kids to school, and then she had two scheduled doctor's appointments in New York City, one at 11 a.m. and one at 1 p.m. 
On May 24th, the kids had a half day at school, and this obviously conflicted with Jennifer's schedule, having an appointment at 1 p.m. in the city. So Jennifer called her babysitter, which is a girl named Lauren, and asked Lauren if she could pick the kids up from school that day and bring them back home because she was going to be out and that she would be back later that afternoon. Lauren agreed to this, and she got to Jennifer's house at 11.30 a.m. to situate herself before picking up the kids on May 24th, but when Lauren walked into Jennifer's home, she immediately could tell that something was wrong. Now, by the time Lauren got to Jennifer's house, Jennifer was not there. However, there were multiple different things in the house that made Lauren assume that something was not right. For starters, when Lauren drove up to the house, she noticed that Jennifer's car, which is a Range Rover, was still in the driveway. Now, this was concerning to Lauren because Jennifer had specifically told Lauren that she was going to be taking the Range Rover into the city. However, Jennifer did have a second car. She had a Chevy SUV Suburban, and that was not at the house. So Lauren thought it was possible that something happened that made Jennifer decide to take the SUV instead of the Range Rover. However, once Lauren walked into the house, she noticed that Michelle's purse was on the floor. Now, this struck Lauren as extremely concerning because she knew that Jennifer would, of course, have taken her purse with her everywhere she went, especially if she was going to a doctor's appointment in the city. Jennifer would have taken her purse with her, so the fact that it was still there definitely worried Lauren. And the third thing that was off-putting was a cup of tea and a granola bar that was left on the counter untouched. Now, for most people, you might think that this is not extremely off-putting. However, Jennifer was a very tidy, neat, organized, meticulous person. She never left dishes or any food out, which is why it was noticeable to Lauren, noticeable enough that she thought it was strange. However, she thought maybe on the off chance, Jennifer was in a rush to get out the door, and that's why she left it on the counter. Nevertheless, though, Lauren decided to grab paper towels and start cleaning up. But when she did, Lauren noticed that there were only two full rolls of paper towels left. And when Lauren was there the day prior on May 23rd, there were 12 rolls of paper towels. This made Lauren question what could have happened that would have prompted Jennifer to use 10 full rolls of paper towels. Now, despite her concerns, Lauren went and picked the kids up from school at noon as she was scheduled to do. And then she texted Jennifer at 12.43 p.m. to let her know that she had gotten the kids they were back at the house, and everything was good, but Lauren didn't get a response. Lauren then texted Jennifer again at 1.10 p.m., but didn't get a response to that either, and then lastly, she texted Jennifer a third time at 2.30 p.m., but still got no response. By 4 o'clock p.m., after still not hearing anything from Jennifer, Lauren decided to just call her. However, the call went straight to voicemail. This is when more of a panic began to set in, and Lauren decided to start texting some of Michelle's friends. One in particular was a woman named Carrie Luft, who after talking to Lauren agreed that this was extremely strange and unusual behavior for Jennifer. So after this conversation with Carrie, Lauren decided to take the kids to Jennifer's parents' house in New York, and a missing persons report for Jennifer was filed at 7 p.m. on May 24th, 2019. 
Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. Now, authorities jumped on this case right away, and they started searching Jennifer's home. When they looked in the garage of Jennifer's home in New Canaan, authorities found a dark red stain on the ground near the side of Jennifer's Range Rover car, and then a splatter stain right next to the garbage bin next to it. If you guys are familiar with the big, giant garbage cans, you know, the ones that you'll pull to the end of your street for the garbage truck to come pick up, that's what was inside of her garage and that's what the splatter stain was on. Authorities also made note of the fact that the stain had a swirl mark in it, indicating that someone had tried to clean the stain up, but was unsuccessful in the process. Now, just an hour after Jennifer's missing persons report was filed, authorities also were able to locate her SUV vehicle that was missing from the house. The car was found at Waveney Park, which was located just three miles away from her home. Now, obviously finding the car at the park, it gave authorities the first indication to completely search that park, thinking that Jennifer could have been somewhere in this park. Now, this park itself is three hundred acres and authorities searched all throughout it. They used helicopters, search dogs, the FBI got involved and anything authorities could think of they were using. However, unfortunately, Jennifer was not found in that park. Now it was at this time that authorities decided that they needed to inform FOTUS on what was going on. So they went to his house in Farmington and told him that Jennifer was missing, which is when he told police that he hadn't heard from Jennifer or the kids all day, but was concerned for Jennifer. So he agreed to go to the police station to help answer any questions authorities had about Jennifer or her disappearance. But weirdly enough, when it was time for Fotis to go to the police station for his questioning with authorities, Fotis's lawyer actually walked into the station and his lawyer told authorities that Fotis would actually not be speaking with them at that time and he was not going to cooperate with the police. Now, this was obviously a red flag for authorities because this is the mother of your five children. And for whatever reason now, you're not willing to help at all. When in the beginning, you said that you were completely open to answering any questions. So because of this, police ended up seizing Fotis's cell phone and obtaining a search warrant for his home and his car. 
Right after obtaining Fotis's cell phone and the search warrant for his house, police got a break in this case because at this time, a neighbor of Jennifer's came forward and said that they actually had security camera footage of their front yard. And the way that their security cameras are set up is that it shows the front yard. However, it also extends a little bit over into Jennifer's end of her driveway so they could see a little bit about what was going on in Jennifer's house as well. Obviously, they couldn't see the house. They couldn't see people entering or exiting Jennifer's home, but they could see the end of the driveway. Now, when this neighbor went back and looked at their security camera footage, it showed that at 7.58 a.m. on May 24th, a Range Rover, Jennifer's Range Rover, pulled out of her driveway to take her kids to school, and the car came back and pulled into the driveway at 8.05 a.m., and then the black SUV leaves the driveway at 10.25 a.m. Now, with this new footage, which has been described by authorities as completely critical footage, authorities now wanted to track Fotis's phone records to see if he was at Jennifer's house or anywhere close to it at the time in the morning on May 24th. However, when they checked his records, all they saw was that Fotis's phone was at his house that morning. But again, it's important to note that even though his phone was at his house that morning, that does not necessarily mean that Fotis himself was at his home that morning. But what authorities did find off Fotis' phone was strange and bizarre activity from the night of May 24th, so the night that Jennifer went missing. At about 7 o'clock p.m. on May 24th, Fotis' phone was actually located on Albany Avenue in Hartford, Connecticut. Now, being in Hartford was not the strange red flag here because Hartford, to just give you some reference here, farming where Fotis was from was only about 13 minutes away by car from Hartford. So it's not odd that he was in Hartford. What was odd was the amount of stops that Fotis made on his drive on Albany Avenue. Authorities were able to figure out that Fotis made multiple stops on Albany Avenue on the night of May 24th. Once they did this, authorities teamed up with the Hartford Police Department and wanted to get as much surveillance footage as possible in the areas that Fotis was that evening. Authorities actually went to the extent of driving down Albany Avenue and took a speaker and yelled in the speaker asking for anyone who had surveillance footage of any part of the town to send it in to authorities. That's how they were getting this surveillance footage. However, this tactic worked because because of this, they were able to gather 12 hours worth of surveillance footage to sort through. And when they did, they discovered a black Ford Raptor truck that matched the stops that Fotis was making on Albany Avenue in Hartford. Now, this Black Raptor truck did not belong to Fotis. Fotis did not drive a Black Raptor truck. However, Fotis's company would rent out a Black Raptor truck to be driven by a specific employee. This employee originally drove a red beaten down pickup truck. However, when he would go to Fotis's properties for his real estate company, he would drive a Black Raptor truck. So when authorities got a hold of this footage, they saw that a Black Raptor truck was making the stops that Fotis's cell phone was making 
And along with that, even though they were not able to completely positively identify the man in the surveillance footage, they were able to figure out that the man in the security camera footage did resemble Fotis Dulos. Fotis stopped 30 different times on a four-mile stretch on Albany Avenue, and several witnesses remembered seeing the truck and seeing the driver in the truck and confirmed that the man driving the truck was Fotis Dulos. On the surveillance footage, Fotis is seen dropping off trash bags into the trash cans of each of the locations he stops at. That's 30 different locations, 30 different trash cans to stop at to dispose of different trash bags. Now, in one of the surveillance footage clips, it's seen that the driver isn't actually alone and that he is actually with a woman, a woman who physically matches the description of Michelle Traconis. Now, once they saw this footage, authorities jumped on it. They immediately went to the trash cans that these bags were being placed into based off of the security footage. And when authorities sifted through the trash cans, they did find some of the bags that Fotis had disposed of. And when they opened these bags, they found very bizarre items in it. These items included a kitchen sponge, paper towels, zip ties, a mop head, and women's clothing covered in blood stains. Now, another thing that they were able to recover, which really just does seal the deal on this case, was Fotis's Connecticut license plate for his car. Authorities found that in a sewage drain and it had actually had pieces of tape over specific letters and numbers on the license plate in hopes to try and distract from what the license plate actually said. However, authorities were able to see through that. And once they were able to remove the tape and find what the license plate actually stated, they were able to link it back to Fotis's license plate. At this point, authorities thought that their next best move was to move onto the Hartford landfill, thinking that it was possible that Jennifer's body could have been disposed in there. So they searched for three weeks in this landfill. However, they did not find anything. Now, at this point, authorities decided to talk to the babysitter, Lauren. Now, she told police all about Jennifer and Fotis's tumultuous relationship. She said they were constantly arguing, constantly fighting, and Jennifer was extremely depressed because of it. She told authorities that Jennifer wanted to make her relationship with Fotis work, but he wanted to move on and be with Michelle. Lauren also said that Fotis had the audacity to ask Jennifer if it was okay before Jennifer moved out, mind you, if Michelle and her daughter could move in with Fotis, Jennifer, and their five kids. Yes, you heard that right. Fotis wanted to move in Michelle while Jennifer and their children were still living in the house with him. Lauren also went on to say that the real final straw for Jennifer was when Fotis bought a gun without telling Jennifer. Jennifer found a receipt for the gun and she became worried for her own safety, which is when she decided to finally leave. Now, after talking with Lauren, authorities wanted to talk to Michelle, so they brought her in for questioning as well. According to her, on the morning of May 24th, her and Fotis woke up together, they slept together, and then they showered together before he went off to hang out with a lawyer friend of his named Kent. Michelle says after Fotis left that morning, she didn't see him again until he came back to their house at 1 p.m. that day. When Fotis came back, Michelle said that he asked her if he would go clean up one of his properties for a client of his with him, which she agreed 
to do. So the two of them drove to a quote unquote client of Fotis's property house to clean up. Now, I think it's very interesting the fact that Fotis runs this extremely successful real estate development company, and he is the one that is going and cleaning up some of his houses. You would think that he would have a team to be able to do that. You would think someone would already be responsible for doing that and that it wouldn't be the guy who owns the entire business. However, Michelle didn't think twice about it and she went along with it. So the two of them went to the house and after going to the house, Fotis asked if Michelle wanted Starbucks, which she said yes to. However, instead of going to Starbucks, Fotis kept making all of these stops along the way, throwing away trash bags. Now, even though Michelle did confirm that it was her and Fotis in the surveillance tapes, so that's another big thing to note, she did confirm that her and Fotis were in that truck, driving on Albany Avenue, making all of those stops. Michelle said that even though that was them, she didn't know what was in the bags and she was on her phone the entire time, so she wasn't paying attention to what Fotis was doing. After authorities spoke with Michelle on June 1st, 2019, both Fotis and Michelle were arrested. Now let's put that into perspective. Jennifer went missing on May 24th, 2019. Michelle and Fotis were arrested only days later on June 1st. The charges were first degree hindering of prosecution as well as tampering with evidence. However, several days later, they both made bond. So they were released, but put on ankle monitors and were released with the condition that they were not able to interact with each other. They couldn't talk, they couldn't communicate. And so because of that, along with the fact that Michelle at this point has basically denied everything, said that she is not aware of what was going on at all. She's not involved. She's basically just been thrown into this because of that, she breaks up with Fotis. She says she doesn't want to be connected with him anymore. So she and her daughter move out of Fotis's house and move into an apartment together. Now in their search for Jennifer, authorities also went ahead and searched all of Fotis's real estate properties that his company owned, which came up to nothing. Now around this time is when something very interesting happened. An interesting piece of information came to light. Police became aware that Fotis rode a bike and it was a very particular bike. Fotis's bike had something called ram horn handles. I'm not going to be able to give a completely accurate description. So if you want to look it up, I recommend it. However, the best thing that I can describe it is on standard bikes, you have handlebars that are basically straight. The handlebars just go straight across. However, on these bikes, the ram horn handles, it's a longer, more curved handle. I'm sure that you have seen these types of bikes before, but just never knew what the names were. So this was the type of bike that Fotis rode. And the reason that this really even came up at all was because authorities went back and looked at the security camera footage from the neighbor of Jennifer's home. And when they did this, they noticed someone riding a bike towards Jennifer's house at 7.40 on the morning of May 24th. Once the footage of the bike was discovered, that is when authorities started asking people who knew Fotis about if he rode a bike. And that is when people said that he did and said that the type of bike that Fotis rode was one with ram horn handles, which matched the exact bike in the surveillance footage 
of Jennifer's neighbor, meaning that more than likely the person riding the bike towards Jennifer's house that morning was Fotis. Now, because they had a search warrant to search through Fotis's home, authorities walked in and literally found an alibi script on Fotis's desk. This alibi script was something that Fotis had written out, and it says everything that him and Michelle did on the morning of May 24th. And it was the exact story that Michelle had stated to the police. They woke up, they slept together, they showered together, he left to go meet with Kent, she met him later. It was all written there. And you would think if those are just the activities that you did that day, you wouldn't have to write them down like that. Now, along with the alibi script, when authorities did the initial search of Jennifer's home after finding out that she was missing, they took DNA samples from all over that house. And they also took samples from the red stain that was found in the garage. Now, when the forensic results came back from this, it showed that the blood in the garage, as well as the clothes found in the garbage cans on Albany Avenue in Hartford, were a positive match to Jennifer Dulos, meaning the clothes in the garbage cans were Jennifer's that Fotis had thrown away in the garbage cans. Mind you, those clothes had blood all over them, and the red stain in the garage was blood that matched Jennifer. Along with that, the real kicker in this is that the forensic testing also showed that there was blood found on the kitchen sink faucet, and the blood that was found was not only Jennifer's blood, but it was also mixed with Fotis's blood as well. That is basically all authorities needed to convict Fotis of this. This is absolutely huge on charging Fotis with this. And along with that, Fotis's DNA was found on the doorknob of the mudroom in the house, which just confirms even more that he was at the scene of the crime when he was not supposed to be. Fotis was not the type of person that ever visited Jennifer. Jennifer was very afraid of Fotis and she made that very clear to the court system when she filed her divorce papers, as well as everyone around her knew that Jennifer was afraid of Fotis. Now at this point, obviously, police really could nail Fotis for being at Jennifer's house that morning and wanted to talk to Michelle again because they wanted to just see if she would confess anything. They wanted to turn Fotis and Michelle against each other, even though they weren't together romantically. They still wanted to see if Michelle would confess anything. But Michelle still stayed very, very strong on the fact that she had absolutely no involvement in this, which made police start to wonder if maybe Michelle was just manipulated by Fotis this entire time as well. She continuously denies having any involvement or any knowledge on Jennifer's disappearance and continuously states she has no idea where Jennifer is. When police told Michelle that the house that she went to clean up with photos that afternoon was actually Jennifer's, Michelle was shocked. She was actually very, very shocked. She couldn't believe it. And that is when Michelle told authorities that she had lied before about being with photos that morning. And when she woke up on May 24th, he was already gone. So for Michelle, learning that the house that she went to with photos was actually Jennifer's, that was enough for her to tell police that she was not with Fotis like she said she was. In September 2019, Michelle and Fotis were arrested again, this time for tampering with evidence charges. However, they were both released on bond. 
On January 7th, 2020, Michelle and Fotis were arrested. Fotis was charged with capital murder, murder, and kidnapping in relation to the disappearance of Jennifer. Michelle, on the other hand, was charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Now, remember earlier how I said that Michelle had told authorities that on the morning of the 24th, Fotis was with his lawyer friend, Kent? Well, Kent was also arrested on the same charges as Michelle. It was said that on the morning of the 24th, Kent and Fotis were together, and there was a lot of incriminating evidence against him, even though he denied it. Kent also had an ex-wife who, when they broke up, said that she was afraid that both Kent and Fotis were going to come after her and kill her, which is very, very concerning and just proves that Kent and Fotis almost act as this Bonnie and Clyde type of situation. After being arrested on January 7th, 2020, both Michelle and Fotis were able to make bail. However, Kent remained in jail. Now, Fotis pled not guilty to these charges and the defense here really narrowed in on the theory that Jennifer wasn't even dead and that she planned her own suicide to frame Fotis because she's still angry with him about the way that their marriage ended. This obviously absolutely infuriated Jennifer's family because they knew more than anything that Jennifer was not the type to leave her children ever, especially over something like Fotis. She wasn't going to disappear from her life just to make Fotis's life hell. That's not what she was trying to do. That's not what happened here. And it absolutely infuriated her family because it's just so insulting to the entire situation. Now, before the trial started, there was actually an emergency bond hearing held on January 28th, 2020. And on this morning, Fotis actually had a different girlfriend at this point. He found a new girlfriend. I don't know how. However, he did. And her name is Anna. And Fotis called Anna that morning and told her to meet him at the courthouse and that he would meet her there for this emergency bond hearing. However, Fotis never made it to the courthouse that day. Instead, he was found unresponsive in his car in the garage of his home after attempting suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning. After first responders found him, they then transferred him to the hospital. However, he was pronounced dead after being taken off life support on January 30th, 2020. Fotis did leave behind a suicide note that essentially says that he is an innocent man and was tired of living a life of people assuming that he did something that he didn't and that he refused to spend time in jail for something he didn't commit. In this note, he says, quote, I had nothing to do with this. Enough is enough. If it takes my head to end time, so be it. I want to be known that Michelle had nothing to do with Jennifer's disappearance, and neither did Kent. I ask the state to let them free of any such accusations. I ask the state to stop harassing my friends. They are honorable people. Please let my children know that I love them. I would do anything to be with them, but unfortunately, we all have our limits. The state wants me to rot in jail. My attorney can explain what happened with the bags on Albany Avenue. Everything else is a story fabricated by the law enforcement. I want to thank all my family and friends that stood by me through this difficult time. Above all, Anna, I'm sorry for letting you down and not continuing the fight. Fotis, end quote. 
Now, with all of this focus on Fotis, we still have no idea where Jennifer is. Even though Fotis is no longer here, Jennifer has still never been found. She has never been given a proper burial. She has never been given a proper memorial. Her children have never been able to say goodbye to their mother. And that is what is really driving her family crazy is that Fotis is no longer here. He is the one person who held all the clues to this puzzle. However, despite that, authorities will not stop until they find her. Authorities, for the most part, believe that Fotis drove his bike up to Jennifer's house either before the kids left for school that day or during the time that Jennifer was gone dropping the kids off and Fotis met her when she came back unexpectedly. As for what happened after that, it is unclear. However, we do know that there was a lot of blood found in that house. There was blood all over that house and... Fotis's blood was also mixed in there. That, along with the surveillance tapes, really just indicates that Fotis was responsible for Jennifer's disappearance. And hopefully, one day Jennifer's body will be discovered. I would love to hear what you guys have to say about this case. You can email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. You can also DM me on Instagram. It's just at killerinstinctpodcast. And with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. Again, my name's Savannah. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. So I I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. So I I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.